Hello, friends. My name is Levi Dugan, and I am the planting pastor of Cayley Community, a new United Methodist faith community in Oklahoma City. Our mission is to lead all people in the way of love by gathering, growing, and giving in the name of Christ. As we are engaging with the church planting process, having begun planting Cayley Community on January 1st of this year, I thought it might be neat to discuss the ins and outs, the good, the bad, and the ugly of church planting. You can always submit questions or thoughts at kayleycommunity.org contact. And so reach out, ask questions, send your thoughts, your concerns, your ideas. We need to collaborate as a community to help us be the best we can be. Enjoy the podcast. Well, today we're going to talk about this idea of evangelism. And um, if you're listening to this podcast and you're someone who comes from a more conservative or traditional evangelical background, you might think that this is crazy, that we have to have this conversation. Uh, But it is reality in the mainline churches, and I'm a member of one of those, the United Methodist Church Evangelism is not an easy uh, topic for us, for denominations or movements that have been heavily influenced by the liberal Christianity of the 19th and 20th century, and for those who are influenced by the progressive movement of postmodernism and postcolonialism, evangelism can be as much a bad word as a good word. And uh, the reason for this is because of, well, our history as Christians. Uh, It's very sad that if you look at the history of Christianity, you can point to a lot more uh, oppression and colonialism and enslavement and uh, subjugation of people and violence. (laughs) You can see a lot more of that in our history than you can the teachings of Jesus. Teachings and values of nonviolence and reconciliation and peace and love. And so when you look at the history, you know, when you hear criticisms by folks like Bill Maher, for example, who is a big fan of saying that religion is a net negative for the world because it is sort of one of the uh, causes of so much violence and so much tribalism in the world. And to be fair, he's he's got a point. There is a strain of uh, religion that tends to become extremely Violent, but I actually believe that it is not so much the religion that is at fault as it is the uh, the state or the government that allies with that religion, co-opts that religion, and uses it to their own ends. And so, as we get into this conversation about evangelism, we have to talk about how evangelism has uh, been mistreated and malformed by many people who have led uh, Christian movements across the world over the last 2000 years. And um, it's important for us to think about this really awful reality that so much violence has been done in the name of Christ. And this is true also of other major uh, faith traditions as well. Why does this happen? Well, it's not a very difficult thing to answer. Most of us have the answer, whether or not we can speak to it easily and clearly. But it is, as John Philip Newell famously said, when Christianity got in bed with empire, 
we began to take a turn away from the kind of healthy evangelism that peacefully spread the good news of Jesus Christ to an unhealthy evangelism that sought a sort of ends justifies the means approach that allowed for torture, oppression, slavery, so many acts of evil and violence in the name of converting people to Christianity. But we would be uh, disingenuous if we suggested that that history was merely about converting people. If we're very skeptical and very discerning about history, what we can see is that so many secular leaders adopted Christianity and wore the clothing of Christianity in order to uh, to achieve their imperial goals. And we see this really early on, particularly when uh, the Pope essentially anoints Charlemagne as the, the first Holy Roman Emperor. And you have this sort of alliance. Now, it certainly started happening before then, such as when Constantine in the 300s became a Christian. Uh, But we see it sort of reach its peak when religion and the state are completely indistinguishable again in the ninth century. And it just becomes more and more concentrated over the next six or seven hundred years where Christianity and the state whether it's in Central Europe in the uh, Holy Roman Empire, whether it's in Great Britain, whether it's in Spain, we see this alliance, this marriage between uh, the institution of Christianity and the institution of the state, whatever government that might be, coming together uh, supposedly for mutually beneficial goals. But really the goals that were at work here were Uh, the conquering of peoples, and the exploitation of natural resources. We know this to be true. It's it's the truth of history. European empires in particular, we're speaking kind of from a Western perspective, European empires uh, sought to expand themselves into Asia and Africa and the Americas, and in the process to take, to take uh, tobacco, to take minerals, uh, to take food, to take uh, furs for clothing, to basically exploit the natural resources of these vast lands. And in order to do that, they had to conquer a people. And they had this basically healthy, uh, (laughs) well, not healthy, but in their minds, a healthy excuse for why they were doing this. It was because these people were destined to hell. And if we don't save them from hell, then we are not being faithful Christians. So even if we have to get them to confess Christ at the end of a sword or at the end of a whip, it's worth it because suffering a little in their present time is better than suffering in eternity in hell. This is how they justified in their minds this uh, horrible violence and oppression. What in the world does that have to do with evangelism today? Well, unfortunately, it has everything to do with it because Christianity has one of the worst reputations it's ever had in its history in the 21st century. Most people don't want to be part of Christianity anymore. People are turning from the church. 
They're turning from Christianity. They like this Jesus guy, but they hate the institution that has generally been on the wrong side of love, the wrong side of grace, uh, the wrong side of mercy for the last 1500 years. And we have to ask ourselves as Christians, if we produced such bad outcomes in uh, how we've behaved, (laughs) then maybe we've gotten our theology wrong. And maybe we've also gotten uh, our evangelism goals wrong. What's really the point of evangelism? And what is our theology? Because if your theology is driving you to do harm to other people, your theology is false. You have a bad interpretation of scripture. And unfortunately, that's been the truth for most of Christian history. When we look back to the very early days of the church, right after Jesus uh, was resurrected, we see a church that's sort of um, radical, it's subversive, it's small, it has very little, if any, political power or economic power. It is very much a church for the poor, a church for the marginalized, uh, a church that's lifting people up and not tearing people down, and a church that's radically inclusive of different kinds of people in that day and time. When we see Christianity get in bed with empire, we start to see a homogenization of Christianity, a certain kind of person that fits into the club and others who are of a different stripe or background or color really don't belong anymore in this institution. And the institution becomes more and more exclusive until we get to the Reformation around 1500 AD. So for a thousand years, we just see a a steady march toward exclusion. Now, something happens in the Reformation that's a positive, which is that we open up uh, the church to everybody. And by everybody, we generally mean white European American, or you're not European American, By everybody, we generally mean uh, Europeans. They are uh, welcome in the institution of Christianity, and that includes, you know, non-readers and readers. It includes day laborers and uh, royalty. There is a little bit of a flattening of class and dynamics in the Reformation time, but it is definitely still very much focused on a specific race of people and a specific kind of person leaving out those who are indigenous to other continents like the Americas or Asia and looking down on people that aren't from this core European corridor. And so we really see this continued march of exclusion just in a different way for the last 500 years of Christianity. And that lands us at today with all this baggage as Christians. You know, most people are pretty intelligent, actually, and they do think about what they believe and why they believe it. And they look at Christianity and they see this history of aggression and oppression. And they think to themselves, I don't want to be a part of that. I mean, even 25 years ago, the Barna Group was coming out with surveys saying that one of the very top reasons that people were leaving the church was because of its anti-gay stance. That one issue alone probably led to a majority of those who've left the church in the last quarter of a century. If we had just reckoned with our theology and the harm that we were doing to other people, we probably could have stemmed the bleeding in our churches more quickly. 
I'm not saying it would have fixed all our problems, but this perception of being anti-gay, which is earned because of conservative evangelicals, has really damaged the church's reputation with those who we want to reach most. And it's exclusive and non-loving and non-gracious and non-merciful. So it's bad theology to uh, be anti-gay in the first place. But that's one of the things that has done tremendous harm. In addition, the church too often has allied itself with white supremacy and racism in America, basically carrying on the tradition of the conquistadors and those who look down on indigenous people. We continued to conquer and enslave as Americans to marginalize Native American peoples and commit cultural, if not actual, genocide, and to continue to enslave African Americans and even after slavery was ended, to create this separate system of oppression and terror for those who were supposedly free. All of this gets layered on top of Christianity and creates problems for the church planter in the 21st century. And then if you add on top of all of that church trauma, you basically have a one, two, three punch that is very hard to overcome. In fact, at Cayley Community, we've received a lot of new visitors, new members this year, and the number one reason that they weren't in church before was because they experienced some kind of church trauma. Now, I don't use the phrase church trauma lightly. Surely, church trauma uh, means something significant. It's not just that you your pastor changed and you didn't like the new pastor, And church trauma isn't even because one time a pastor preached something that you didn't like or that hurt your feelings. Church trauma is about kind of a continual uh, exclusion or harm done to you or someone in your family. Now, on the most extreme end, it can be uh, abuse from a pastor or a staff member uh, toward a child or even toward an adult. It could be sexual abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse, kind of a cultish uh, situation. And that can be one extreme of church trauma, but it can also go down to those microaggressions and passive aggressive stances that churches take. So for example, in our context, so many of our families have been impacted by special needs and in their experience, their church trauma comes from being in a situation where their child was really never fully incorporated into the children's ministry or the church. Oftentimes their child was segregated or they were asked to essentially not bring their child to certain events or ministries because it just wasn't uh, workable for that children's ministry or that church. Or there might be an incident where a child is struggling with behaviors for whatever reason, and oftentimes it is uh, triggered by the leaders in the room. But that experience or that incident is so uh, shaming or embarrassing to the family. And if the church doesn't handle it well, it just results in that family feeling unwelcome in the future. There are many other experiences of church trauma. So many people I know have uh, recognized who they are at the core of their being, which is that they are gay or transgender or bisexual and then are immediately shunned from their church. There are people who get a divorce and then are shunned by the people of their church. And shunning happens in different ways. 
in many conservative churches, they will literally ask you to leave. But for most churches, the shunning comes from a social interaction and microaggression. They see you in the grocery store and they turn the other way and they walk away. They see you at a restaurant and they get up and they walk out. It's that kind of social shunning that creates real trauma where it makes you feel like you've done something wrong when you really have not. So it's church trauma combined with this history that we've had over hundreds and hundreds of years of violence and oppression and slavery has really tarnished the name of Christ in a way that is very hard to overcome. And on top of that, Christians today can't really agree on what the gospel really accomplishes. You know, more conservative Christians still believe that believing in the gospel saves you from eternal damnation. Then you have progressive pastors, some of whom don't even really believe in the supernatural resurrection of Jesus or that Jesus is fully divine. There's a lot of questions about traditional doctrines like the Trinity or salvation. And then you have people like me, and I feel sometimes stuck, not quite in the middle per se, but stuck in the sense that I have a a traditional mindset in terms of orthodoxy. I, I still believe the basic tenets of the Christian faith as sort of spelled out in the old creeds of the church. I believe in, you know, God, the father creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died and was buried. It goes on to say, I believe in the Holy spirit, the Holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. These are all tenets that I I hold to, and I I don't really need to question them. I mean, I don't need to prove them in the Bible. I don't need to really uh, prove them in any other kind of intellectual exercise. I can accept those basic tenets as historically what we believe as Christians. And so that sort of keeps me out of the progressive area in some ways, because Uh, I really am kind of traditional in those basic beliefs. But how those beliefs get applied in the 21st century, well, that makes me very radically progressive because I think I look at the early church and it was a radically inclusive space where you had slaves and slave owners worshiping together. You had men and women worshiping together. You had uh, prostitutes and merchant women worshiping together. It it was radical in how it broke down walls, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. And so from the application standpoint, okay, this creed that I just cited, what, what does this creed matter? How does it apply in our lives? And for me, it's about everybody belongs and everybody's included and everybody's welcome in this good news. It's not good news if people are left out of it. So you can be both kind of traditional and progressive at the same time. We don't have to live in this world of false dichotomies where you have to pick a tribe and stick with it. The fact is that there's something beautiful about the historic faith of Christianity, but then we have to acknowledge that the way we interpreted us took us in a very wrong direction for most of our history. And we got to get back to basics and reinterpret this this faith for a new community. Evangelism, then, if it's not to save people from eternal damnation, and if it's not total crap the way some (laughs) far-left pastors and theologians might think, what's the point of evangelism? 
And I really like the way that Al Tizan puts it in his book, Whole and Reconciled. He says, essentially, that the gospel is really about reconciliation. It's about reconciling us to God and reconciling us to each other. And if you think of that as a vertical beam, reconciling us to God, a horizontal beam, reconciling us to each other, then you have this beautiful picture of the cross. The cross is literally an image of what it accomplishes through Jesus Christ, which is that we are brought near to God and then we're supposed to be brought near to each other. And if that's not happening, if we are divided and divisive, then we have misinterpreted what God's plan was for us. And we have to go back to the well and figure this out. It's important if you want to plant a church to have a really strong theology of evangelism, of what it means to proclaim the good news in your context. And if it is to save souls from eternal damnation, well, then that's what it is. And you're highly motivated to do that. That's not what I believe personally. But I think that that is one plausible interpretation of Scripture. But I think it can't be on the other extreme either where your idea of evangelism is really that evangelism is not that important, that we don't really need to quote unquote save souls or convert people to Christianity, that we're really just creating a, an inclusive community. And I think that's a beautiful idea, but at the end of the day, that's just a social club, a philosophy club, a support group. What makes a church a church is that it worships Jesus Christ, that it worships God, that it serves a purpose and a mission in its community to be the hands and feet of Christ. That's what makes a church a church. And so, yeah, found your social club, but that's not being a church planter. A church planter is decidedly creating a community that is motivated by the beauty of the gospel, that is motivated by the fact that God did some work through Jesus Christ that changed who I am. And that if I can live that out in my life, I can help change who other people are too. That I can bring a joy and a peace to people that transcends what's possible outside of God. That I can bring a sense of belonging to people that transcends the kind of belonging you can just get in a social club or a sports team. I think that to be a church planter, you have to really believe that the Holy Spirit is real, that God is real, that the Son is real, and that... That Holy Spirit moves and works and is supernatural in a way we can't understand, that we want to access that Holy Spirit and interpret God's will for us in such a way that we were constantly working toward reconciliation with God and with each other. And anything that's creating uh, angst and division and separation is probably evil at the end of the day. So as you think about developing your theology of evangelism, consider your specific mission context. Don't be too grand about it. Think about your specific context and ask yourself a couple of questions. One is, who are we trying to reach? Who are we trying to reach? What, what is your prototypical family? We've talked about this in the past. Another question to ask is, what is our geographical area that we want to reach? We talked about that in the past. And as you've identified these things, then the big question is how, how do we quote unquote evangelize? How do we spread this good news that, you know, God is bringing us together, 
God is unifying us. How do we spread that message? And that is going to be the unique expression for every church. For every church's DNA, it's going to differ. And for you, it might be a focus on the liberation of immigrants. It might be a focus on reconciliation in race. Uh, It might focus on uh, political activism in the death penalty or uh, abortion issues. It could be whatever it might be. It might have just basic things like meeting food and shelter and clothing needs for people, which would be very in line with what Jesus wants us to be doing. But whatever it is, it's something that you've thought out deeply, that you've prayed about deeply, and that you have made a plan with your team to bring it forward. Mm-hmm.